Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am joined via phone line with Ethan J. Keitel and Blaine Roberts, historians of slavery and race and professors at California State University in Fresno. They just released a new book earlier this spring entitled Denmark Vesey's Garden, Slavery and Memory in the Cradle of the Confederacy. Hey, how's it going today? I'm doing great. doing great, you know, just uh, past this uh, pseudo-tropical storm hurricane in New Orleans, and we're pretty pretty clear skies here, so it's kind of nice. So what, what about you guys? Well, uh, we are, we hope, finishing up summer here in Fresno, where temperatures can easily get above the 100-degree mark, but there's no humidity. No humidity, but we're just coming out of fire season. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll take the humidity over fires, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and this air is finally somewhat clearer here, so we'll take that as yeah. a good sign. Well, good. Well, well to kind of get us started, um, two academics and, and writers that kind of muddle around in the messy questions of memory, race, and history. I'm wondering, in both of your opinions, why is it so hard for us to have honest conversations concerning those topics? Oh, we can start with a tough one. Huh? I know, I know. <laughs> um, I, I think in part because uh, so many of those questions while they might seem uh, products just of the past and they, they, don't, they don't speak to us today as individuals. In fact, um, when it comes to things like the memory of slavery, uh, when it comes to things like the memory of the Civil War, which are you know, two central topics of our book, uh, so many people today still live with those as a part of their identity, um, their identity shaped by how um, uh, the country has or has not um, uh, reckoned with these critical questions and these critical parts of our past. And so they're, they're, they're fraught. Um, uh, they mean a lot to people, even if they um, uh, speak directly to things that have happened 150, 200 years ago. Yeah, so for many white Southerners, for example, um, these questions of memory are deeply personal. Um, and I think it's also important to keep in mind that for generations, particularly in the South, but I want to be clear that this was happening nationwide as well, um, our schools were not doing um, a fantastic job of teaching accurately the history of slavery, the history of the Civil War. And this was in large part a function of what can be accurately called a propaganda campaign that was undertaken in the early 20th century by uh, white Southerners like members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, and so kind of taking what had happened, what, what really did happen with slavery in the Civil War, and, and, and saying, no, this, the Civil War was not about slavery. Repackaging it. Repackaging it, and, and essentially spreading um, historical myths Lies. Lies. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not use the euphemism. Yeah. Them what they are. Um, throughout the region, and this becomes a central part of many white Southerners' personal identity, being able to say, well, my ancestors fought in the Civil War, but they fought on the side of noble things like uh, states' rights, like uh, small government, like... Um, Defense of the South. Defense of the South, homeland. defense of homeland. And so when you've been taught that for generations and that becomes a part of your personal identity, it's very difficult to then be confronted with the truth that slavery was bad and that the Civil War was in fact fought by the South to protect and preserve the institution of slavery. And a point, just to tag on to that just a, a bit, a point Blaine made at the beginning, that this is something that certainly started in 
and was more pervasive in the South, but it's a national story. You know, we live out here in California, mm-hmm. Central Valley of California, and have written occasionally op-eds that will touch on the lost cause and the idea that, that no historian today would disagree with, that the Civil War, the primary cause of the Civil War, slavery. And just mentioning that um, uh, in print, uh, we've gotten numerous phone calls, emails, letters to the editor saying, what are these professors talking about? They don't know what they're talking about. Um, so sort of echoing lost cause talking points a uh, hundred years after these first began to be spread across the country and 3,000 miles from their epicenter in places like New Orleans and Charleston. Yeah, no, no, I think that that's so important. It's really interesting to think about that as a nationwide issue where it's a lot of the time pinpointed directly in the South where there are problems, of course, and there are originating problems from here. But I think about like the re-rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the early 20th century, which was a bipartisan issue, which was set across the nation. And it's not just one party's problem. It's not just one part of the country's problem. Absolutely. I mean, Indiana was the, you know, for that second um, uh, rise of the, or the second iteration of the Klan, it was, Indiana was in many ways its um, epicenter. Right. And there were active Klan chapters right here in the Central Valley of California. Oh, Wow. Well, interesting, guys. Well, to kind of move on to some some tangible uh, ramifications of the, this history kind of being muddled, which are um, monuments. And I know during the summer you both took quite a trip through um, both southern states and elsewhere to see a bunch of these manifestations of memory, the Confederate statues that people have around as memorializing certain things and what those mean to the communities and such and trying to write about that. Um, Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? It's funny. We kind of... um... We actually, you know, sort of stumbled on writing about that. We've just written a short piece, a photo essay about that, um, sort of <laughs> towards the end. We, we kind of didn't set out to do it. We yeah. were on a book tour. We were uh, promoting our book, Denmark Vesey's Garden, Slavery and Memory in the Cradle of the Confederacy. And, yeah, we had no intention of, of kind of writing about all of these Confederate monuments. But what we realized in each town and city that we went to, there was – maybe not just one, but often multiple monuments or other types of memorials commemorating the Confederacy. And, and you know, we, we're, you know, we're historians, we're good tourists, so we naturally probably would have found them, sought them out anyhow, but we kind of didn't even try to do that in most cases. They're right there um, uh, in the center of town squares, um, you know, in the center of major uh uh, circles like uh, Lee Lee Circle there in, in New Orleans, obviously the monument itself is not there, but its pedestal um, uh, remains. And so we found ourselves taking photos and then sort of thinking about the different ways Southern communities um, have dealt with this issue over the last few years when there certainly has been a sea change in some places, places like New Orleans, um, places like now Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, where we both went to graduate school, that have seen remarkable changes to their commemorative landscape, and then others where nothing seems to be happening at all. Um, uh, and so we, we thought it was sort of an interesting way to think about how um, some parts of the South seem to really be confronting this part of its history, that is this moment or these moments where they put up these um, test, uh, testaments to Confederate soldiers and Confederate leaders, whereas others' communities don't seem to see these as problematic or there's not the political support for people who do see them as problematic. Yeah, so we actually ended up seeing, I guess, what you could call the full spectrum of responses to what I think we would fairly call the problem of Mm -hmm. Confederate monuments. So 
On one end, uh, take a town like Greenwood, Mississippi. Um, the town has on one of its central squares, on the courthouse lawn, a Confederate monument that, as far as we know, hasn't generated too much public outcry. I'm sure there has been some. Um, and no real public conversation about removing it or putting up a plaque to contextualize it to explain why it's problematic. So that's kind of at one end. In a place like Asheville, North Carolina, we saw a memorial that had been vandalized. To Robert E. Lee. Yeah, to Robert E. Lee. It had uh, been scratched up by something. Somebody. Somebody, uh, using probably a piece of metal. Something sharp. Either. Yeah, something sharp to scratch up the metal plaque. Uh, and then on kind of the other end of the spectrum would be a place like New Orleans that had a fairly deliberative process about uh, removing its monuments. And then, as Ethan mentioned, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which has really been embroiled in controversy for the last year or so as the administration has dragged its heels and not done anything. And so students really took matters into their own hands about two weeks ago and toppled the monument that sits on the UNC campus. Wow, that, that is true, yeah. So you see all these different things kind of reacting and kind of going there. It's interesting. That's right. And so we kind of saw the, the full range of responses this summer on our book tour. Yeah. We went to all of those places. Right. Among mm. others. Among others, yeah. <laughs> no, interesting. <laughs> well, to kind of get into the book a little bit, uh, who was Denmark Vesey? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a good question. And what, I, we should say maybe at the start, because um, uh, we, we sometimes find that our title, which has Denmark Vesey's garden, uh, uh, Denmark Vesey's name in it, mm -hmm. can be a bit confusing. Our book is not a biography of Denmark Vesey. Um, he's sort of a symbolic figure. Some way he, um, he haunts our book. But uh, Vesey was... Uh, an enslaved person in Charleston in the early 19th century uh, who was sort of in a, in a remarkable thing, remarkable story. He, he won the lottery, a lottery called the East Bay Lottery, um, uh, right around uh, 1800, the year 1800. And with the winnings from the lottery, he was able to purchase his freedom. Not something that happened uh, very often. Uh, he was able to purchase his freedom, but he was unable to purchase the freedom of his family, of his wife and his children. Um, and then the years after that, the 10 or 20 years after that, you know, he increasingly became um, angry living in a, uh, under the sort of uh, harsh slave regime of Charleston as a free black person, but uh, among uh, the enslaved community. Uh, and by uh, the early 1820s, he decides that he is going to uh, lead a slave revolt. Uh, it was set to take place on Bastille Day, July 14th, 1822. Um, but ultimately, a couple of um, uh, other enslaved people in Charleston get word of it. Um, authorities find out, and they crack down very harshly on V.C. and his co-conspirators. Uh, ultimately, he and about uh, three dozen uh, people are executed. Uh, and this is a, uh, in, in the aftermath of uh, this conspiracy. There's a whole series of crackdowns in Charleston and South Carolina. And in many ways, V.C. Uh, kind of haunts and his, his would-be insurrection haunts uh, white Charlestonians for decades and decades and decades. That's right. Uh, to many white Charlestonians, he is a really kind of infamous figure. Um, and so one of the reasons that we decided to put him in the title, in addition to the fact that his, he kind of haunts white Charlestonians, is that for us, he really embodies one of the major themes that we explore in the book, and that is this. 
there is a, a tradition of remembering slavery in a place like Charleston uh, that we call the unvarnished memory. And that unvarnished memory of slavery holds that slavery was a brutal, inhumane institution that was based in violence. And I think Denmark Vesey embodies that because what we see here is a former slave who's managed to buy his freedom, who was ultimately willing to risk his life to plot this large-scale slave insurrection to try to break the, the bonds that were, you know, really mm -hmm. enslaving all of these other people in Charleston. And it shows just really the lengths to which some people would go to try to um, get, you know, get rid of slavery. So for us, he embodies this unvarnished tradition, this unvarnished memory. Slavery was bad. It was brutal. It was inhumane. And yeah. that's one of the major And it themes. was the cause of the Civil War. And it also was the cause of the Civil War, to get back to our conversation about monuments. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the major things that we explore in the book, is that unvarnished memory of slavery. And so that just to, to finish that out, the, our title, Denmark Vesey's Garden, so the, the Denmark Vesey embodies this unvarnished tradition of memory. Um, and what we argue throughout the book and trace throughout the book is, is kind of a, is a debate in a contest between proponents of this unvarnished memory and proponents of what we call the whitewashed memory of slavery. And that's something that was forged by former slaveholders and their descendants. Um, it was something that downplayed the importance of slavery to the history, to the wealth of, of a city like Charleston, that's our focus, um, to the South more generally, certainly to a place like New Orleans, um, and to the United States as a whole. Um, uh, proponents of the whitewashed memory of slavery would argue that slavery wasn't the cause of the Civil War. Um, they would also argue uh, that slavery itself was a sort of benign, benevolent, civilizing institution. And so in our title, we think Denmark Vesey sort of encapsulates the unvarnished memory, whereas the, the, the third word, garden, Denmark Vesey's garden, um, uh, garden encapsulates the whitewashed memory because this is the euphemism that for decades white Charlestonians after the Civil War used to advertise their historic plantations. They advertised them as gardens. Come see our beautiful magnolia-laden gardens, wander through these places. And of course, these are places that were brutal, in many ways, labor, slave labor camps, but they were framed to and, and used to get tourists to come as these whitewashed vehicles of historic memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that that that's fascinating. Actually, I, it always rubbed me as strange here that at least when I I had a thinking of mind about it that people in the South get married at plantations a lot of the time. <laughs> um, yes, uh, it's, an, it's certainly an interesting place for something like a wedding to take place in mm -hmm. the 20th and 21st centuries. Especially if you know what went on. Yes. On those on those plantations, um, you know, the uh, historian a number of years ago uh, named Peter Wood provocatively argue that, that although plantation, the word plantation, um, is historically accurate, that is, that's what, uh, for, de for uh, decades, really centuries, uh, Americans called large farms, they called them plantations, that it's so caught up in sort of moonlight and magnolia, mm -hmm. um, uh, 
sort of marketing. marketing and romanticization that, that we mislead people by using this historically accurate term. And his argument, provocative argument, is that let's substitute a term like slave labor camp or gulag yeah. because that's more accurately a reflection of what went on, say, at Oak Alley, yeah. not too far um, uh, from you there in, in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, something actually that effectively what the Whitney Plantation, a new historic museum outside of New Orleans, does is they, 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 you know, they don't call it that, but they, if you listen to what they talk about and how they frame and talk about uh, that plantation and plantations more generally, they underscore that, it, that, that these weren't places of moonlights and magnolia. In fact, the Whitney Plantation, not that far outside of New Orleans, does a very good job of preserving this unvarnished tradition of remembering that we're talking about. And I can't imagine, based on what I know about the Whitney, I could never imagine they would ever in a million years have weddings there. Yeah. Um, but it would be very difficult to imagine that anybody who had ever gone on a tour at the Whitney Plantation would want to get married at yeah. Whitney. Or any other plantation once you know once that. Once you've done that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, having the proper associations for it. That, that, that's so interesting. I um, Recently, I saw Gone for the Gone with the Wind for the first time at a, at a mm-hmm. theater here. And uh, I'm sitting there, and it, it's a beautiful movie and has really compelling aspects of it. But underneath it, it is like the most exceptional piece of propaganda that I've ever seen um, in so yeah. many ways. And I, I kind of want to ask you, when, when dealing with representations that are completely against this unvarnished view of history, how do you combat something so compelling? That, that is a, it is hard. It's really hard. Because you're right. It's a film like Gone with the Wind. Um, you know, I still, when, when I, I often use that as uh, an entry point when I'm teaching uh, the Old South and ask students, and still, even though it's not nearly as popular as it was 50 years ago to even 30 years ago, a good portion of our students, certainly history majors that we teach, um, have watched that and, and, and love it. Um, and because it is a, a fantastic piece of filmmaking, but also a fantastic piece of propaganda. So it's hard because, you know, in some ways, one thing we try to emphasize is that the unvarnished memory of slavery is the memory that reflects the historical record. Mm-hmm. That is, um, uh, the it, whitewashed memory is the propaganda. Is the propaganda, and try to show where that is the case, um, expose that. But it, but it's very difficult, um, in part because there are always exceptions that um, uh, that say whitewashing uh, folks want to use as the rule um, to say you know there were occasionally um, benevolent slaveholders who who tried not to break up families. Now, if you go to historic plantations today, you, it would seem that every family was a was, didn't want to break up um, uh, slave families. When, and you know, we know in fact that hundreds of thousands of uh, people were sold away from their family members. Mm-hmm. Um, but it becomes uh, difficult to counter that when an individual may have been the exception. Yeah, but I think that you know, it's certainly in our classes we show essentially the historical record. You know, uh, documents. Uh, that talk about how, yes, the, the Civil War was, in fact, about slavery. Right. Um, in, in public forums, we can do the same thing. And I would say that, for the most part, um, people do seem to be open when confronted with evidence that challenges what they learn. Most people are. You'll always find a few holdouts who are not, and I I don't know what to say about <laughs> You know, a, a group of people who can't be persuaded by the the reality of the historical record. Yeah. But, it, but it is hard. I mean, even the, the most obvious uh, challenge that historians have faced um, uh, on this score is not, I think, convincing people that um, 
slavery was an awful experience. A lot of people don't quite understand the full scope of it, but but I think you can, you know, uh, you rarely find people today outside maybe the Dylan Roofs of the world mm-hmm. um, who will who will vocally um, defend slavery as a as a just institution. And Dylan Roof uh, was the white supremacist who murdered the nine African American prisoners at the Charleston Church in 2015. Right. So you're, those are, I think, few and far between. Uh, maybe the folks who were marching in Charlottesville last mm-hmm. year, that sort of thing. But see, the causes of the Civil War, I think, is one of those that that question of what caused the Civil War is one of those issues where there is so much documentation of that this is this is why historians who rarely agree on anything this is one of the few things that every civil war historian agrees on because it was patently obvious um, this is the only thing that was really being debated in the secessionist convention um, was whether to leave because slavery was imminently under threat or whether slavery could be better to protected staying within the United States that had um, nurtured it for 80 some odd years um, this was what they were arguing about. This is what they were talking about. The, docu- the documentary record proves this. Um, yet there's still, you know, 30, 40 percent, depending on um, what poll you take and what portion of the country you're polling, uh, people who will refuse to to listen to this argument. And, and so it shows, I think, it demonstrates how, um, uh, you know, romanticized history, propaganda can can sort of seep in and, and, and grip um, uh, people's minds, and, and it's hard to, to convince them. I think that scholars are trying to do a better job about about not just talking to one another and talking to the public um, to try to get across some of these messages, but it's a challenge. Yeah, it's interesting. You're speaking around all these things, um, and we're, we're limited on time, but I do want to ask you, um, what are some books or, or, or pieces of, of culture that have really helped focalize these issues for you? Uh, are there any recommendations that you can give our listeners to kind of delve into more besides your own book that you have right here? Sure, besides our own book, which we um, think highly of, right? Yeah. Um, so, well, I think in terms of movies, um, 12 Years a Slave, which came out a couple of years ago now. Four or five years Four or five ago. years ago. Um, I think most historians would agree does a good job of showing many of the realities of slavery. Um so I, I would recommend that particular movie. Um, can you think of anything else? I mean, there there are so many books that I, um, yeah, I, I it, it's a challenge to to single out um, uh, any one book um, that makes these points. I do think that that building off the Twelve Years a Slave. I mean, one one simple way to go is to look at what enslaved people have written. Uh, and there are, for a long, long time, historians, uh, this hasn't been true for dozens of years, but for for better part of the for first half of the 20th century, a lot of historians ignored what enslaved people wrote about their experiences, whether it was run, runaway slaves like Frederick Douglass, um, uh, who you know wrote a number of autobiographies, uh, or whether it were, were, was interviews that were taken by um, folks who worked for the Federal Writers Project, um, a New Deal program in the 1930s who interviewed thousands of former slaves um, when they were very, very old. Um, a lot of historians dismissed those things as inaccurate, um, uh, as either abolitionist propaganda in the case of slave narratives or as the reflections of elderly um, former slaves about their childhood and not representative. Mm. Um, but ultimately, they are, I think, great 
Now historians understand that although there are a few problems with some of those sources, on the whole, they are fantastic windows into the experiences of the enslaved. And so in some ways, that's where I would start. Yeah, uh, Frederick Douglass's narrative is a great one. Um, also for listeners who might be interested in the experiences of enslaved women, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl um, by Harriet Jacobs is a really good look into what it was like to be a young woman in this slave system. Interesting. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Um, but before we go, I was wondering, uh, are there any new projects that, that you're both working on, either together or individually? Uh, right now, mostly we're recovering writing <laughs> uh, this book together. And I don't mean to say that, that it was hard to write it together, but we, we both actually we started this book while finishing up separate projects, separate book projects of our own. So we've kind of been working nonstop on one book or two books for the better part of uh, 15 years. Um, so we're, we're both kind of taking a breath and trying to figure out what our big um, Next major, project will yeah, be. So this, we're, this fall, we're focused on our daughter's soccer schedule. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good uh, focus. <laughs> and and, and yeah. maybe, maybe some small little yeah. projects, some, some sort of uh, public history projects. I'm, I'm uh, interested in doing some documentation of slavery and the slave trade in Charleston and, and doing some of the, actually building on some of the stuff, great work that's been done by folks down there in New Orleans um, to start to document the sites of the slave trade and sites of slave rebellion. Um, but but that's a small thing. <laughs> a small thing, of course. Um, <laughs> well, guys, thank you all so much for, for coming on speaking with us. Uh, Ethan, Blaine, this was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. It was fun. That was historians Ethan J. Keitel and Blaine Roberts, who are authors of the new book, Denmark Vase's Garden, Slavery and Memory in the Cradle of the Confederacy. And again, we find ourselves at the end of the show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch us every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. You can find an archive of all of our previous programs as well as all of WRBH's other interview programs on our SoundCloud page, which is at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.